Today's, uh, it's not going to be a sermon, uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, whenever I hear a kind of a, a Reformation Day on one of the solas, sometimes uh, the sermon is basically a, an exposition of a scripture on faith or grace and not really t- too connected to the Reformation and I always feel kind of, okay, this was false advertising, I was expecting something very Reformation uh, Reformation E. Uh, and so um, today's uh, message, I'm going to uh, coin a phrase, uh, Dr. Abner Chow, president of the Master Seminary in Ecology, sometimes he uses this, this phrase, uh, a lerman. Today's a lerman, not a, not a sermon. A lerman is a, a half lecture, half sermon, right? You have a tiger, a lion, liger. This is a lerman, uh, more lectury kind of history. I want to give you a, a little, uh, some background, uh, a historical um, things on uh, the Reformation. Level two, uh, not level one. Uh, level one, you can read blogs, but little level two, it'll go, it'll go a little deeper today, and we'll have a, some, a short exposition on grace toward the end. And so uh, if you need coffee, there's coffee in the back. I'm not offended. Go, and it's kind of one of those kind of history classes, and so um, that's what it's going to be. So before we get started, would you bow your heads in prayer with me as we ask the Lord for his favor? Father, we thank you for this day, a day where we get to come together and just be reminded of uh, what you've done in history, you resurrecting the gospel of justification by faith for the church. Um, we, we thank you for sending Christ to live a perfect life, perfectly obedient to your law, and then by faith, um, giving us, uh, imputing his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, to our account, and, and based on that righteousness, declaring us uh, justified, declaring us uh, perfectly um, righteous, sinless. And so it's in Christ that we come to you, and it's because of his work on the cross, it's because of his resurrection where we can have the confidence and boldness to go before your throne and, and lift up our requests. And Father, we ask for, uh, for grace that you would um, dispense your grace through the preaching of the word, that every time the word is preached and taught, every time it's read, that your sanctifying grace would be mediated through that instrument to us, and, and you would grow us, and you would change us, and you would conform us into your image. And, and we know that, Father, and while, while there is a role we play in sanctification, really it's ultimately you're the one who's doing it, you're the one who's growing us, that apart from the vine we, we can bear no fruit, and so, Lord, grow us, change us, conform us into your image. Help us to be like Christ. Uh, Lord, uh, forgive us, Father, when we f- fail, but uh, give us uh, daily repentance, a uh, desire to turn from our sins, to confess our sins to others. We ask for spiritual growth uh, as the word is taught, preached, and read. Father, we pray for our marriages in, in, amongst our, our members. We pray that uh, husbands would love their wives as your son has loved the church, that wives would submit to their husbands as the church submits the, to Christ, and every marriage would be filled with a humble um, compassion and mercy, and every marriage would be filled with a mutual a chasing after Christ, a, a longing after uh, your holiness. Uh, Father, pray for our children. We pray that um, you would give us parents just a, an urgency to daily uh, model Christ to them, but more importantly, teach Christ to them through your word. That every day we, we would think about uh, 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 teaching them uh, a passage of scripture, uh, uh, book by book. We, we would go through scripture with them and, 
and, and teach them what you've, you've been doing in history and in our lives. We, we pray that every day we, we, we would remind our children of the gospel and we pray for their salvation, that they would come to Christ in an early age and that you would spare them from the, just the unnecessary sin that, that does no good for anyone. And so we, we pray for salvation for our, our children, regeneration. We pray for the body, that the body would be a, 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 just a, a place where our children can just see Christ reflected, uh, that um, they would grow, as they, you save them, they would grow to love the church, love to be a part of the church. Uh, Father, we, we pray for um, our singles, we pray for purity in relationships, we pray for uh, just a, a commitment to service with the time and the resources they have. Uh, Father, we uh, lift up uh, our ministries, we lift up our leaders, we pray for elders that you would uh, grow, grow elders here and, and give us a plurality of leadership to uh, keep one another accountable, to, to model uh, faithfulness to the, the body, to teach, to shepherd the congregation. Uh, so we pray for the building up of our church here at Cross Life. Uh, Father, we pray for our, our, our leaders, our political leaders in this time of election. Help us to uh, vote our biblical values. We pray for common grace. We pray for uh, leaders who make decisions according to, to, to your word, to the truth. We pray for the salvation of our leaders, um, that you would save them and they, they would model Christ in the, in, in the, in the halls of um, Capitol buildings all over this country. And Father, last but not least, we pray that you would just uh, inform us and, and encourage us today in this, in this message, this, this talk about, about, about grace alone and, and what you've done uh, in history to help us know uh, the grace of Christ. Um, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Host tenebrous Luke's this Latin phrase was adopted in Geneva, Switzerland, the home of John Calvin, as the motto for the, the Protestant Reformation. It means light after darkness. And for about a thousand years of oppressive church rule referred to as the Dark Ages, the, the Reformation brought uh, out from the darkness of scholasticism, the, the philosophy of Aristotle, ritualism, and morality, political intrigue, the light of the true gospel. And now, a little more than 500 years after Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the, to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg on October, October 31st, 1517, the church, more than ever, needs to be constantly reminded of the, the fundamental truths of our Protestant faith. Every two years, um, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway, they, they partner together to conduct a, a fairly comprehensive survey of a, American evangelicals. And, and this year's survey for 2022 revealed some troubling beliefs. And here are some of the, those results. 45% of evangelicals in America believe God accepts the worst worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 40% of evangelicals believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being uh, created by God. Uh, only, uh, only 20%, only 27% of evangelicals believe that the Holy Spirit gives a spiritual new birth or new life before a person has faith in Jesus Christ. 66% of those surveyed either somewhat agree or strongly agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 58% strongly disagree that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 
And 70% of evangelicals either somewhat agree or strongly agree that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. One author commenting on the crisis in Protestant circles wrote this, the tenets of the Christian faith are under attack by the very same people who claim to be upholding them. Sadly, many people who regularly sit in Christian churches believe they are going to heaven, but they are being taught a message that will surely not lead them there. Today, biblical and theological literacy is at an all-time low. Protestants don't know what to believe. They don't know what their Bibles teach. Modern-day mysticism has convinced churchgoers to uh, the belief that, uh, that a belief is right if they, if they feel it's right. The common non-denominational credo today is just love Jesus. And this minimalist Christianity is, is destroying the Protestant faith hour by hour. Protestants don't know why they're Protestants. Seeker-sensitive churches, entertainment-driven churches obsessed with discovering the next new fad uh, have, have cut themselves off from, from anything resembling historic Christianity. Therefore, we as a church don't want to presume that what is happening to so many churches around us could never happen to us. We, we never want to lose the gospel as the center of our, of our church's life. And, and we do that first and foremost by a, a fierce commitment to the exposition of scriptures. And we can also do, hold the line by never forgetting our Protestant roots in a movement that marks it, makes its mark in history in the 16th century to reform the church. And so I thought it would be a blessing for us uh, here at Cross Life to begin remembering and, and celebrating the central tenets of the Reformation once a year at the end of October, near or on October 31st. The Reformation that exploded in the 16th century is the, is the greatest revival in church history. And the message of the Reformation was a, was a theological message. It answered the question, how does a person get right with God? How does a person get right with God? That was the central issue. And the spirit of the Reformation that, it, that encapsulates the answer to uh, this basic question comes to us through five short Latin creedal statements called the five solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. On this Reformation Sunday, we're going to focus on just one of these five solas, sola gratia, or grace alone. And every Reformation Sunday, each year, I'll, I'll go to the next solo. So if you're a guest, you'll need to stay here five years to get the whole series. So, thank you. Can I have a clicker? Is there a clicker somewhere that I can use? Up and down. So our first point tonight is, where do I have to point? Somewhere? Where do I point? Uh, okay. okay, our first point is, uh, maybe somebody could figure that out for me. Oh, okay, good. Grace according to Augustine. Grace according to Augustine. In order to understand the debate about grace in the Protestant Reformation, we need to spend a little, a little bit of time understanding the theology of Augustine. And I think it was said by R.C. Sproul's old theology 
professor John, uh, uh, John Gerstner that outside of the apostles and the prophets of scripture that, that no other man influenced the, the life and theology of the church to the degree that Augustine did. Augustine's classics like Confessions and City of God are, 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 are mainstream books that you can buy at your local Barnes and Nobles. I had to read the Confessions in seminary. And Augustine was a, was a, a particularly important figure among the reformers because of his teachings on grace. Charles Hodge, another uh, noted Reformed theologian, remarked that one of the victories of the Re- Reformation was Augustine's understanding of grace. Uh, church historians contend the, the impossibility of overstating uh, the, the influence of Augustine on the Re- Reformation, that you simply cannot uh, understand the Reformation without addressing the theology of grace expounded by Augustine. Church historian Carl Truman, and he's kind of the uh, the main the main resource that I use for this this his history part uh, he says this about Augustine's impact on the Reformation. I quote: Indeed, so important was the work of the the Bishop of Hippo in the conflict of the 16th century that whichever side could make the best claim to being his heir would, in so doing, have come close to victory in any doctrinal debate. In the first 500 years of church history, we don't have a lot of writings about grace. Uh, prior to Augustine, discussions of grace uh, did not elaborate on the idea of grace as unmerited favor. That doesn't mean there were no discussions on grace. It just means we don't have writings about that. It's not recorded. Um, the first 500 years, the record of early church uh, history, it focuses on the details of Christology and the relationship between the Father and the Son. Discussions about grace came in the context of grace of, of Jesus Christ as the embodiment of grace toward a sinful world. But the means by which God's grace was received and, and how grace was experienced by believers was not widely discussed. And so we begin talking about uh, Augustine's confessions because it, it was the response of this autobiography that triggered and, and forced Augustine to elaborate and expound upon his understanding of grace. The Confessions is not a systematic theology. Uh, it is Augustine's personal testimony of salvation, his personal experience of grace. And, and what we're first reminded of from his autobiography is this. It is the Confessions, write that down. We're reminded that God's grace is a response to a problem. God's grace is a response to our fallen condition. And that means how we understand grace is shaped by how we understand the extent and nature of the human problem. For Augustine, the core of the human condition was the existential observation that the human heart is restless, that the human heart is full of unending restlessness since the fall. Left alone, the heart never finds the satisfaction it craves, but moves from object of love to object of love as as each object in turn fails to answer the heart's deepest needs. And and Augustine opens his memoir of, of grace with these words, Our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
And so Augustine, he connects this existential crisis of, of a restless heart to the fallen, sinful state of humanity. Our sin alienates us from God. Our sin uh, turns us away from our Creator. And so we, in response, turn toward the creation for the source of life's meaning. And, and uh, Augustine, he sees the, 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 the great shadow of sin fall on every human being from the moment of our conception. And one of the examples he uses is, is, his, his, is, his, is his experience as a baby. I don't know how he remembers this, but he, he talks about how as a baby, when, when he didn't get the milk he wanted from his mother, even though he was, uh, he was, he was full, the baby would cry in fury. He, 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 he remarked that, a, that an infant may appear sweet and harmless, but the harmlessness that we see lies in the weakness of the body. Make no, make, make no mistake about it, the mind of a newborn, according to Augustine, is already corrupt and ever vicious from the earliest of ages. And as, as the father of two young kids, if they had... If there was a machine where they could kind of grow in 15 years without the maturation, emotional, spiritual maturation, and they had the same mind and, and emotions in a, in a 20-year-old body in the middle of their temper tantrums, my wife and I would be in very big trouble. We would give them to you. Um, and, and, and furthermore, he... He talks. A, he talks. A, he gives it a, a personal example of of the fallen condition, and and, and the, the example that he chooses to understand our, our fallen condition is this is a is a, is a an experience he had as a, as a teenager with his friends. It's a very mundane act of of stealing pears from his neighbor's backyard, and. And the point of it, the point of this story is that if grace is a response to the human condition, then it is important that we, un, that, that we know what the human condition is in some detail. And his emphasis on his, his, his theft of pears is the absence of any inner logic. The theft of these pears undermines the pointlessness and irrationality of sin. If Augustine was starving, the, the crime would make sense. If the pears tasted better than the pears in his own yard, there might be some logic to the theft. It would still be sinful and wrong, but it would be comprehensible. But he makes it clear that the pears that he stole weren't very tempting, they didn't have good color, that wasn't very tasty. They took the pears and they just threw them away. And his main point from the example is that fallen people simply uh, sin. They sin simply because they want to break the law. And, and we break the law because human beings fool themselves into believing that they are God. When I break God's law, I stand above God's law. I feel like I am God. I feel like I'm the one in control. But that euphoria quickly wears off. And again, I am restless. And so I sin again and again for that artificial high to maintain the illusion that I am God and I have found the solution to my problem in myself. You see, for, for Augustine, the existential problem of humanity can be understood by asking the question, who or what should I love? Who or what should I love? The, the restlessness of the human heart is driven by finding that which, when made the object of love, gives rest and peace to the soul. Human beings are, are designed to find their fulfillment in loving God, but, but fallen human beings answer that question of, of who they, who they, who they should love with 
myself. We believe that loving ourselves as God is the answer to our problem, but it is that very self-love that cuts us off from the real God and dooms us to a life of dissatisfaction. In the Confessions, Augustine describes sin as something dominating our personal existence. It offers no means of escape. If we are to be free, our deliverance must come from someone outside of ourselves. And, and he, he explains the, the, the slavery of sin this way. He had a friend who was going to the Roman Colosseum to watch this bloodthirsty, gory gladiator kill each other. And his friend was adamant about how he hated it. He did not want to go. He was forced to go. And so he was resolved not to, uh, to enjoy it. He wouldn't even look at it. But when he got there, he, he, he had a peak, and then he had two more peaks, and then all of a sudden he was looking at it, and then all of a sudden he was, he was enjoying it, and by the end of his time there, he was fully controlled by this pornographic violence he was beholding. And, 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 and Augustine uses this example to show this is what sin does. Sooner or later, sin dominates your entire being, your body, your soul. Sin turns us inward on ourselves. It, it places the self where God should be, and it, and it has the kind of power that enslaves our entire being. Augustine's conversion happens in a garden. His first example of that sin happened in a pear garden, and the imagery is referring you back to the to the garden and right before the fall. And, and this conversion, he kind of uh, insinuates the kind of the tree of life at, at the at the end of at the end of scripture. And so he's in this garden, and he's come to this realization that the philosophy of Plato had no power to rescue him. And so he turns to the religion of his mother to see if there were answers there. And, and just before his conversion, uh, Augustine writes of his inner turmoil. He, he wants to be free of the sin that's killing him, but he can't free himself until in a garden, wrestling within himself, he hears a, a mysterious voice. A neighbor's a child calling out, take up and read, take up and read. And, and suddenly he finds a... a a letter on the ground before him, Paul's letter to the Romans. And he reads it, and then suddenly all is clear, and his soul is calmed. It was God's word. God's word from the outside. It's the word from God outside of himself that leads him to cast off his old life and embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. And so this narrative of Augustine is a story about grace, sovereign, powerful grace, overwhelming grace. And, he, and, and Augustine makes clear that he was, he was trapped in depravity and despair. He needed outside intervention because within them, within himself, there was nothing that dwelt that was good. And that intervention came from the mysterious voice of a child, the reading of, of God's word and the internal work of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and Augustine is careful to emphasize in, in the confessions that it was God who converted him. It was the, it was the miraculous, undeserved uh, intervention of God that enabled him to find true rest. In the early years, in the early uh, in the early centuries, the fifth centuries, uh, books were hard to come by. You couldn't go to a Barnes and Nobles, um, and most people uh, didn't read anyways. And so, books back then were read publicly uh, in the marketplace. And, and one such book, one such reading, was Augustine's Confessions. And and in that audience, there was a, a Welsh monk named Pelagius, and that 
That, that encounter started what we know as the Pelagian controversy, a, a controversy that forced Augustine to expound upon a more systematic understanding of grace than the intuitive understanding of grace recorded in the Confessions. See, to, to, to Pelagius, as he was standing there, it seemed like Augustine was teaching people that the responsibility of obedience fell, fell, fell solely and squarely on God's shoulders. Augustine was giving people an excuse for moral laxity. For, for Pelagius, the, the, the problem of man, the, the fall of man, did not bring innate, eternal, internal fallenness. Rather, the, the fall of man gave humanity a bad example to follow in Adam. We sin in Adam by following his bad example. For Pelagius, for Pelagius uh, sin is primarily something external. We, we have a bad example. So if that's your understanding of the human condition, if that's your understanding of the problem, then your view of grace will be, will be a counterpoint to that understanding. And therefore, the, the solution in Pelagian theology is a grace that is primarily external. Grace for Pelagius was Christ's example in the Gospels. Grace for Pelagius was God giving us a law to follow. Following Christ's example and obeying God's law, uh, you just do that and your problem is solved. Uh, for Pelagius, the problem was moral ignorance, not innate moral depravity. But for Augustine, sin was so embedded in human nature that grace must go all the way down. Human nature is so far gone that, that knowing the law isn't enough. That merely, merely having the example of Christ is insufficient. The solution must be internal. We must be given a new heart and the Holy Spirit from God outside ourselves. Not to, not to be informed, but to be transformed. And so fast forward a, a few hundred years and you have medieval Catholicism and and while on a formal level the church professes Augustine's view of grace, what has become clear is that Pelagian, that Pelagian heresy is here to stay. In medieval Catholicism, you have a, a great di diversity on grace, embracing Augustine's view and, and Pelagian and semi-Pelagian views about grace. And, but the, the problem then was, was in the way of Augustine's, the way that Augustine's written works were transmitted. There was this lack of printing technology made but book production very complicated and expensive, so very few people had access to complete texts. More common were books that took out random quotations and ordered them thematically, and the most favorite was Peter Lombard's Four Books of Sentences, taking random Augustinian quotes out of context, resulting in semi-Pelagian views and attributing those views to Augustine. And so from Augustine we move to grace according to Luther. Grace according to Luther. And so there's a, Pelagius, a key name you want to remember, grace according to Luther. We examine grace according to Augustine to show you that Luther's understanding of grace wasn't radically new, that he didn't invent the Protestant understanding of grace alone. Even the Reformation notion of salvation by grace alone was not really an innovation. It is no secret that central to the Reformation was classic Augustinian grace. And this is made clear in 1525 when Luther writes a theological treatise titled On the Bondage of the Will. It's a response to the humanist, uh, 
Desiderius Erasmus, he wrote a book on, on, on the, uh, titled Diatribe on Free Will, written in 1524. Uh, uh, let's see, do I have the name here? Yes, Erasmus is a, a key figure of this time. Remember that the, the, the cultural, historical context of the Reformation is the Renaissance. And the Renaissance uh, the, uh, kind of brought back humanism. Uh, humanism is not like what we understand humanism today. Humanism today is like atheism. But humanism back then was uh, this idea of we, we want to go back to the to the origins. We want to go back to Greek culture. We want to go back to the Greek language. We want to uh, go back to the sources, ad fontes. And so uh, Erasmus was kind of the most prominent uh, humanist of the time. And he was really key in the Reformation uh, because he... Uh, took all the, the Greek manuscripts of the uh, of the New Testament and he collated them together and he uh, produced a, a Greek New Testament and, and it was from this Greek New Testament that Martin Luther later translated into German New Testament first and later the Old Testament so he's a key figure and he's kind of a mixed bag and and for all the concerns he had about the Roman Catholic Church he still wasn't considered a reformer he never broke away from the church and he had um, significant problems with Luther's theology and because the Roman Catholic Church was pressing Erasmus to Erasmus he's a big guy he said Erasmus we, we want you to give your opinion about Luther what do you think of his theology what do you think of him and so pressured into that he writes a diatribe on, on free will uh, Luther responds in on the bondage of the will and this is what he writes, interestingly enough, in that book. Um, we'll get back to him, Gabriel Law. You guys see that? Okay. Luther, Luther says this to, to Erasmus. I praise and commend you highly for this also, that unlike all the rest, you alone have attacked the real issue, the essence of the matter in dispute, and have not wearied me with irrelevancies about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and and such like trifles, for trifles they are rather than basic issues, with which almost everyone hitherto has gone hunting for me without success. You and you alone have seen the question on which everything hinges and have aimed at the vital spot, for which I sincerely thank you, since I, have since I am too glad to give as much attention to this subset as time and leisure permits. And then he has all this writing about how Rasmus is just a really bad guy, with colorful language, and then he gets into his theology. But, but this statement here is a, is a startling statement by Luther because it was the issue of indulgences that had brought Luther such, uh, such public prominence, prominence. It was his attacks on the authority of the papacy that had, had earned him excommunication. But here he calls them trifles. Furthermore, it is the doctrine of justification by faith that most people associate with his name. So why did Luther believe that the issues raised by Erasmus, why did he think those were central matters in the debate over the Reformation? And the argument that he makes, Luther does, are, are two major points. One is the, is the impotence, the powerlessness of the human will with respect to salvation. And the other is the, the clarity of Scripture. And he, and he connects these two because Erasmus' argument was that Scripture is, is, is just not clear about the human will. And so we shouldn't make this, this human will and, and total depravity, we, we shouldn't make that doctrine an, an integral part of the faith. But Luther's response was, no, Scripture was very clear that salvation is all of God and that our will contributes nothing to that salvation. 
And his conviction was that the, that this, the Reformation was fundamentally about the nature of grace. He saw his struggle as a recapitulation of the battle between Augustine and Pelagius in the 5th century. For Luther, the, the issue of justification and, and church authority and, and, and indulgences were the results, they were the consequences of prior convictions about grace. You see, when Luther, he, he took his vows as, as a monk at age 22, he plunged himself into the study of theology at Erfurt University. And the, and the theology that dominated that school in all of Western Europe, for that matter, was a, was a theology called Via Moderna, or the modern way. And, and one of the champions of that theology was a man named Gabriel Beale. Uh, can I go back? Can go back? Hey, Gabriel Beale right there. It's an important name. And the backdrop of the Reformation is basically his theology. Gabriel Beale wrestling with, with how somebody could, could attain salvation. He formulated the idea of a pactum or a pact between God and human beings. God graciously, graciously makes a pact that if you did your best or did, literally in the Latin, did what was in you, he would, ex God would accept those good works as the means of salvation. Yes, human beings can merit uh, grace. They can earn their salvation, but unless God had first graciously established the, the pactum as a mechanism for allowing human beings to merit grace, there would be no merit. So there is a, a dynamic of grace in there. The problem was that his criteria for salvation offered no real basis of assurance because you never did, you never knew if you did enough good works to merit this state of grace. And, and that wasn't a problem for the medieval church at the time because assurance of salvation was not the norm for the churchgoer. But it was a big issue for Luther, however. I really like this line by Carl Truman, and it, it really it kind of summarizes in a nutshell the Reformation and, and Martin Luther as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a man, as a person. And, and, and Truman says this, Luther's Reformation theology was the result of three things, an intense personality, a pressing existential quest, and a theology that was incapable of answering the questions raised by the first two. You see, in the early years at the, at the cloister, and some of you already know this, uh, the, young, the young monk Luther, he, he wrestled with guilt. He, he wrestled with this growing anxiety about his ability to stand before a holy and righteous God. Monks back then, they would confess to their confessors, and so his confessor was was a man named Johann von Stoppitz, and he would he would confess all day and, and hours, and then he would wake uh, Stoppitz in the middle of the night, and he had, and he would have more uh, sins to confess. And then Stoppitz, of course, you know, said to him, "Stoppitz, Luther, Stoppitz," and 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 so this was kind of his struggle. Um, the theology of, of Gabriel Beale that he had learned was, was inadequate for Luther because of the pressing doubt of whether he had done his best, thus achieving this state of grace. You see, doing his best couldn't give Luther the assurance that he was looking for. It was too subject of a criteria. And so in 1515 and 1516, Luther was called to preach books of the Bible at the local university, and he was specifically assigned the letter to the Romans. And it was during that time that he realized that Scripture over and over taught that sin brought death, spiritual death, physical death. 
That sin is that which hands human beings over to death, and, and grace is the counterpoint. Grace is the answer to this death. And this was the point Luther made to Erasmus on the bondage of the will. Dead men can't do anything. If humanity's biggest problem is death, then only a power outside of ourselves, someone more powerful or something more powerful than death can give us the solution. If human beings are dead in trespasses and sins, then what could possibly fulfill this, this pactum, this, the, this, this, this pax condition? And Luther gives his answer on his, on his comments on Romans 2. And when, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, he talks about in Romans 2, he says there's, there's no one righteous. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Um, uh, Romans 2, let me read that for you real quick. Or, or Romans chapter 3, no one righteous, not even one, none who understands. And then Romans 2, we're all sinners. And, 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 and Luther gives his answer about how we could possibly fill the Pax condition. And, and this is his comment he makes on Romans 2. The, the whole task of the apostle and of his Lord is to humiliate the proud and to bring them to a realization of his condition, to teach them that they need grace to destroy their own righteousness so that in humility they will see Christ and confess that they are sinners and thus receive grace and be saved. In other words, according to Luther, the condition of the pactum, the condition for the reception of grace is fulfilled by the individual coming to the realization that they are dead in their sins and can do nothing to merit God's grace. You see, when Luther, when he posted his 95 thesis on the door of the castle of Wittenberg, or the castle church of Wittenberg, he was protesting the selling of indulgences. Yes, this we know. There was a, a representative of the Roman Catholic Church, Johann Tetzel. He was raving, raising funds to build St. Peter's Basilica, Basilica. And an indulgence was a credit that you could buy for merit to achieve a state of grace or merit for a loved one in purgatory who still needed more merits to get into heaven. But one month before he posted those 95 theses, in September, Luther writes 97 theses titled a, Dispu a Disputation Against Scholastic Theology, where he attacks the theology of Gabriel Beale. This is on his mind. He writes this. Nobody cares. It's, it's ignored. But this was on his heart when he writes the 95 theses and posts them on the door of the castle church. And... In that, in that 97 thesis, written a month before, he says these kind of things. There you go, that's the writing. Thesis number five. It is false to say that the human will left to itself is free to choose between opposites, for it is not free, but in bondage. Thesis number seven. In fact, without God's grace, the will produces a perverse and evil act. Thesis 29, the best and infallible preparation for grace and the only thing that disposes a person towards grace is the eternal election and predestination of God. In these 97 theses, uh, Luther attacks Beale and he, he argues that the pax, pactum's condition can only be met by a prior act of grace rooted in God's predestination and manifested in, God turning, manifested in a turning toward God. 
To Luther, before he posted the 95 Thesis, the belief that grace could be bought by human effort was an, was an anathema to him. Yes, he was protesting indulgences when he posted the 95 Theses, but, but more than that, Luther wanted clarity on what exactly were the indulgences. And how were these indulgences connected to the church's teaching on grace? And so the 95 Thesis posted at that, on that door was ultimately about grace. It was inspired, it was motivated by Luther's convictions about grace alone. See, back to the bondage of the will. Luther's argument to Erasmus was this. If any element of justification lay decisively within the human will or with a human work, there can be no assurance of salvation. If any human works are, are part of your admission into heaven, you would be left in a permanent state of uncertainty because the chain of assurance could only be as strong as the weakest link. See, a justification that wasn't external, a justification that was an act of the human will or by works would inevitably press you into looking within yourself for assurance. And if that was the case, then there could be nothing to be found of absolute reliability. See, in the bondage, in on the bondage of the will, Luther, he recalls how he had strived for many years to achieve assurance of God's grace through his good works. However, he notes that all these attempts, all that time, was a fool's errand for as long as one element of salvation remained dependent on him and his strength, he could never be certain that God would indeed ultimately be gracious to him. Luther writes of that time, he says, for whatever work might be accomplished, there would always be, there would always remain an anxious doubt whether it pleased God or, or whether he, he required something more as the experience of all self-justifiers proves. And as I myself learned to my bitter cost through so many years. But now, since God has taken my salvation out of my hands into his hands, making it depend on his choice and not mine, and has promised to save me not by my own works or exertion, but by his grace and mercy, I am assured and certain both that he is faithful and will not lie to me, and also that he is too great and powerful for any demons or any adversities to be able to break him or snatch me from him. What is clear is that when it came to grace, Luther stood on the shoulders of Augustine, who stood on the shoulders of our next person we will look at in his view of grace, the Apostle Paul. And now we move to our, our last point of the, the hour, grace according to the Apostle Paul. Where did Augustine and Luther get their theology of grace from? From the Apostle Paul and the inspired word of God. Uh, Augustine didn't invent, invent grace alone. Luther nor the Reformation invented grace alone. Grace alone comes from the, the holy word of God. And, and, and if you could, if you could open with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. Let me read that for you. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. 
and you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the Apostle Paul elaborates on his understanding of grace. And as we discussed earlier, remember grace is a counterpoint to a problem, a big problem. And that your understanding of the human problem will inform your understanding of the solution. And so before Paul expounds upon the solution of grace in verses 4 through 10, he first describes the human problem in verses 1 through 3. What is the problem? What is the human condition that grace is a solution to? Verse 1 says, uh, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were spiritually dead in the sphere of sin. What are the qualities of a, a dead person? There's a lot of qualities, but the quality of, of death Paul is highlighting here is our inability to respond. Our inability to respond to God. When you go to a funeral, no matter how loud you yell, no matter who it is who is desperately crying out to the dead person, um, that corpse is unable to respond. And in a, in a similar way, in our former condition, there, there was on our part a total inability to hear God or to trust God or to obey God or to love God or, or to please God in any way. You were dead. You were dead and your transgressions and sins. We had no ability in ourselves, to respond to God in any way whatsoever. This was utter spiritual death. And, and Paul describes this spiritual death in, in a different way in Ephesians 4.18, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the, the hardness of their heart. And, and I think Paul has the, the, the imagery, this, this hardness of heart. I think he has the imagery of Ezekiel, right? When God saves us, he takes out the heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh, right? The hardness of heart is due to the fact that our hearts were made out of stone. And so what happens if somebody rips your heart out and gives you a heart of stone? You die. You're dead. You're dead. We were spiritually dead, unable to respond to God. What is the problem? What is the human condition that, that grace is a counterpoint to? Well, verse 2 says, We formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. How do spiritual zombies walk? Uh, two ways, Paul says in verse 2. First, according to the course of this world. According to the zeitgeist of our culture. 
according to whatever society at the time says is good or right or acceptable. It's, it's when you're following the latest moral and cultural fad. It, it's when you're subscribing to whatever the worldview is or whatever is popular. That's the first way we walked as dead men. How do the spiritually dead live? Number two, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's a, that's a title for Satan. The course of this world is according to the ruler of the power of the air. Satan rules the system unbelievers live in. He controls the, the culture and the, and the worldview that unbelievers have. But on, not only does he control the world system without, he also, it says, he, he works in, inside the sons of disobedience. And that disobedience is, is described in verse 3 that we formally conducted ourselves in the, the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were, we were characterized by disobedience and were characterized by wrath. All of our Adamic nature merited was God's wrath. Apart from Christ, we had no natural ability to respond to God because we were dead in our sins. We lived according to the world's standards. We were ruled by Satan, and our desires were corrupted by insatiable lust. That is the problem. So if verses 1 through 3 describe the problem, the, the solution needs to be of such a quality that it is able to overcome the problem. Grace has to be of such a nature that it, that it can, that it can overpower and, and overcome the degree of spiritual bondage Paul describes in verses 1 through 3. See, the, the, the grace described in verses 4 and following has to be an amazing grace. Verses 1 through 3, we were in a, in an utterly hopeless situation, but verse 4, but God. But God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that all, all, that, that all of the gospel can be encapsulated in those two words, but God. Dead in our sin, our only hope was but God. What sort of grace is required to overcome the apparent uh, insurmountable problem described in verses 1 through 3? It first has to be a grace that comes from God. If you think about it, verse 4 is quite startling. It's a, it's a jarring contrast from what Paul has just written. It is an unexpected outcome because in light of verses 1 through 3, verse 4 should say, and God in perfect justice sent everybody described in verses 1 to 3 to hell. That's what it should say, but it doesn't say that. It says that the one who should kill us saves us. Why? Because this God, verse 4, is rich in mercy. Because He has great love. And with this great love, He loved us. The only kind of grace that can overcome the problem in verses 1 through 3 must come from God Himself. The, the grace of your pet, your dog can't help you. The grace of another being can't help you because they're in the same predicament you're in. Only the grace of God can provide the solution for our problem. But the grace that, that, that we need can't just come from any God. It must come from a God of unfathomable mercy and overflowing, abounding love. That's what Paul says in verse 4. And next, this grace must be an undeserved grace. It must be an unmerited grace, because look at verse 5. 
The grace that saved us was given even when we were, we were dead in our transgressions. In other words, nothing in us provoked God to give us this grace. It was motivated by his mercy and love alone. There is nothing, there was nothing in our spiritual de- deadness that could compel God to save us. But more than that, our spiritual deadness shows just how hopeless a condition we were in. But Luther said, if our biggest problem is death, then, the, then our only solution must be a power that is greater than death. What sort of power could possibly do that? Paul says, God's grace. And this grace is so powerful. So powerful. Look what it says in verse 5. It made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And this grace is so powerful that it not only gave us spiritual life, verse 6, it raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This grace is none other than resurrection power. Paul is referring back to chapter 8, 19 and 20. The same power that raised Christ. Look at verse 19, chapter 1. What is the, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That same power, that same grace was given to us when God saved us. See, grace is a disposition in God's nature, and it's also a power overcame spiritual death, that raised us up with Christ. This kind of resurrection grace can overcome death. This kind of grace can be the counterpoint to our human condition and the problem humanity all shares. But how do we receive this grace? How do we receive this grace? Verse 8 says, through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is next year's Reformation Day sermon, so... But suffice it to say, when Paul says in verse 8 that this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, the question is, what is that demonstrative pronoun, this, referring to? Faith, grace, what is it? And the grammar really helps us because the Greek noun for grace is in the feminine, faith is in the feminine, but the this, the pronoun, is in the neuter. And so that means that uh, Paul isn't referring to either grace or faith or both. He's referring to the first, the, the, all of the first half of verse 8. The salvation by grace, the grace you have been saved through faith, all of that, all of that, this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even your faith doesn't contribute to this salvation. This, even this faith was a gift of God by His grace to you. It's not a gift plus your contribution to the gift. It is a gift alone. And just to be crystal clear, Paul adds verse 9, not of works, not of works, so that no one may boast. The glory of salvation must go to Christ alone, verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Christ must get all the glory for our salvation. And even our Sanctification, verse 10, even all of that was prepared 
beforehand. And we simply walk in those good works that God created for us. According to Paul, salvation is by grace alone, brothers and sisters. It's been said that one of the immediate fruits of the Reformation that was seen in the lives of those who trusted in grace alone, according to Paul, according to Augustine, according to Luther, was humble joy. The first time they experienced the great joy of the certain assurance that God had justified them by grace alone. When Luther wrote of his experience, his conversion experience, reading Romans uh, chapter 1, that uh, uh, this righteousness wasn't just the standard that we were to meet. Righteousness was something God gave as a gift through faith. It said, he said it felt like he, he entered heaven itself, that he entered the doors of heaven. That was the kind of joy it gave. For the first time, the church, uh, for, for a long time, many were able to experience the, the joy of, of the assurance that they were saved, that it was out of their hands. They simply believed that truth, and that was enough. You just, they just believed it, and that was their assurance. And it was, a, it was a humble joy because nothing they did, even the faith they exercised, contributed to that salvation. And so the, the Reformation gave the church and the world many wonderful things. But one of those things it produced was humble joy that comes from trusting in God's grace alone. And so may Reformation Sunday today and every, and every year and every day for that matter remind us to be humble and to be joyful.